A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being more deeply in touch with our own humanity. This is episode 121, and it is an interview with Alison Weir. This is her fourth time on the show, and she is here talking about her new book, Anna of Clava, The Princess in the Portrait. Before that, though, I just want to make a very exciting announcement. I have received permission from the venue where TudorCon is happening to film and stream the entire weekend. So for those of you who really want to come to TudorCon, but you can't make it to Pennsylvania, I now have a digital ticket available. And you can check that out and learn more at englandcast.com slash TudorCon2019. englandcast.com slash TudorCon2019 is the link to get you to TudorCon. So you can attend virtually. All the talks will be streamed. It will all be monitored so you can ask questions live. The parties will be streamed with hosts and special interviews just for the streaming attendees. And you even get a swag bag. So check it out, englandcast.com slash TudorCon2019. Now let me introduce you to Alison Weir. Alison Weir is the top-selling female historian and fifth best-selling historian overall in the United Kingdom and has sold over 2.7 million books worldwide. She's published 18 history books, including her most recent nonfiction book, Queens of the Conquest, the first in her England's medieval Queen's Quartet. Alison has also published several historical novels, including... Innocent Traitor and the Lady Elizabeth. Anna of Clava, Queen of Secrets, is Alison Weir's ninth published novel and her fourth in the Six Tudor Queens series about the wives of Henry VIII, which was launched in 2016 to great acclaim. The first three books in the series, Catherine of Aragon, The True Queen, Anne Boleyn, King's Obsession, and Jane Seymour, The Haunted Queen, were all Sunday Times bestsellers. Alison is a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts and an honorary life patron of historic royal palaces. So, Alison Weir, thank you so much for being here on my podcast for a fourth time. I'm just so thrilled to have you. It's lovely of you to have me back, Heather. <laughs> um, so, your new book on Anna of Cleve, Cleva, I suppose, was that the, yep. the pronunciation? Um, so, you start off right off the bat with an interesting theory about Anna right in chapter one. And I don't want to have to give away too much for people who haven't yep. read it, but it, it kind of speaks to the idea that we have of her as this kind of innocent person. Um, can you yep. talk to me about your research with that and kind of what led to that? 
Well, it was something Henry VIII said that gave me my storyline because he kept insisting that Anna wasn't a virgin on their wedding night. Mm. And he didn't just say once. He kept saying it to anyone who would listen. He said he felt her breasts and her belly and that by those and other tokens and the looseness of them, she should be no virgin. And I wonder what Henry meant because everybody thinks, oh, Henry was just trying to wriggle out of the marriage. But... That's not grounds. Finding your bride isn't a virgin isn't grounds going out of a marriage. You can't get an annulment on that basis. So I did wonder whether Henry was telling the truth. He'd been married three times. He'd fathered about 15 children. I think he would have known the difference between a female body that had born children and one that hadn't. Mm-hmm. And that just set me wondering. Of course, that, that might be doing a huge injustice to Anna, Anna because it set me because there are other things that could have caused this slackness or perhaps rapid weight loss. Um, a lot of brides lose weight in, in the, in the route to their weddings. And if you're going to leave your country and your family for good and you're marrying a man like Henry VIII, stress levels must be absolutely astronomical. Mm-hmm. And so she could have lost that weight, you know, through stress. Yeah. We don't know for certain. But there is, I mean, I, I pondered for a long while whether to go with this, this theory. And because this is fiction, I'd be, I'd be a lot more cautious writing it as history. Right. But even so, there are, there are sources that could be corroborative, sources as to her character. I don't think she was the, quite the innocent that, were, that, that traditionally she's been thought to be. Right. And you kind of touched on that in the, uh, a couple of places later on, even after she was single, this, the kind of yep. rumors that she was, uh, indulging a bit too much in, uh, alcoholic beverages and yes. inter- yep. entertaining. And, and that she became free with her favors when she did. Right. And, and that, that comes from her own, her former secretary. Um, and the Imperial Ambassador Chapuis reports this conversation he had with the secretary. And this is about a year and a half after after Anna's divorce, but even so, the, the, the secretary—it was clear that both of them were aware that this was this was well known. This information. Mm, interesting. And then you also kind of hinted that in the the very famous conversation that she has with the the ladies about he comes in and kisses me goodnight, and then he yes, yeah, yes. all of that. Um, That's you, a very strange conversation, Heather, because um, because. A month later, her chamberlain, who, who obviously had day-to-day dealings with her, couldn't understand what she was saying. And yet, in this account, the, the ladies of the ladies in the ladies' statement, uh, this is all in connection with the annulment. Um, her, her English is fluent, mm, right. and she could have been speaking through an interpreter. I mean, they were clearly, they were briefed to get her to, to admit that her marriage hadn't been consummated because that was going to be one of the grounds for the annulment. So it's a very strange conversation. I, I also thought it was interesting. You really show the role of, and I'll just say Cleves because that's what people know it as, um, but the role of, of Cleves in the foreign policy kind of world. And that's something that often gets yes. lost when you talk about and Anna yeah, in, in yeah, the context of England. And you need to see her as she saw herself in this European context. So what can you tell me about her life as a princess in Cleves and you know, what, how she would have seen herself in this context? Well, she, she, the Duchy of Clever, as it was in German, mm-hmm. it was, was, was a thief. It was held at the Holy Roman Emperor, but it was pretty independent at the time of Anna's youth. It had its own army, and it had a great culture. A lot of Italian culture came up the Rhine, and there was France not that far away to the west. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was, a, it was, it was an, a, a court based on the based on, on the new learning of Erasmus. It was an enlightened court because its dukes were Anna's father and her brother. They, they were technically Catholics, but they were very tolerant, even of Protestants, at a time when 
Lutheranism is seen as heresy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she grew up at this court. Her mother was a strict Catholic, and she brought her daughters up as strict Catholics. So Anna was always a Catholic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she she was brought up, we're told, never far from her mother's elbow. Mm-hmm. And, the, the, and things like dancing and singing and making music were frowned upon for young girls. Mm-hmm. So it was a very constricted, uh, you know, perhaps suffocating existence for her. Right. Um, and yet she did, you mentioned Erasmus, and uh, can you tell me a little bit about kind of, it seems almost like a, like a dichotomy that there was this very cultural court, and yet at the same time she wasn't able to take part in any of that. No, because the, the, the women were kept quite apart. Okay. So she, they were more or less isolated. I mean, they, they were, the girl, the, the princesses, there were three of them, but one married early. Mm-hmm. They were they were encouraged to entertain guests at table. Mm-hmm. But usually these guests were chosen for them by their parents. Right, okay. Yeah, and you show an awkward moment where she wants to entertain people, um, and, and they all kind of, in, in England, or uh, it was in the scene in Calais, was it? I, where she yeah, wanted... that's right. Yeah she, yeah, she wanted to do this. She wanted to recreate one of these dinner parties. Of course, English ladies didn't do that, although they had a lot of freedoms in other respects. You know, right. they, they, they had all the sort of accomplishments that, that Henry VIII admired in women. They could dance, they could sing, you know, they could make music, write right. poetry. Henry loved all that. Right. But Anna didn't have it. Right. Um, can you talk to me about her her religion, which you touched on that she was raised a Catholic and that she's often seen because she was German as this Protestant bride, but she she wasn't really yes. at all, was she? Well, it's easy it's easy to see why this this this, this is people people have got this impression because uh, she, while she she was brought up as a strict Catholic, and um, Henry I don't think Henry would have married her if she'd been a Protestant, mm. um, and she observed the Catholic faith. You know, when she came to England, her father had broken with the Pope. Unlike Henry, he'd stayed friendly with the Pope, mm-hmm. even after the break. Mm-hmm. So Henry was sort of felt an affinity with Claver. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when, we don't know much about, we don't know anything about how Anna coped with England turning Protestant under Henry's son, Edward VI. But we, but obviously, when, when Mary Tudor came to the throne, and there was a counter-reformation, then obviously Anna would have been, you know, sort of reverted to, you know, if she'd paid lip service right. to the to the Protestant faith in Edward's reign, as a lot of people did, she would have reverted. Right, okay. And um, I, I also want to talk about, uh, obviously, her relationship with Henry and how they they became quite good friends afterwards. And, um, they did. Yeah, it's interesting because sometimes you see them in in the TV shows, like in the Tudors, there's the the idea that maybe they were together. And there are those rumors that they actually had a, a child. Um, and yet... Oh, yeah? Well, yeah. And, and so what can you... What can you tell me about their relationship afterwards? I'm uh, they they didn't have any children, so that, that uh, I, I very much doubt that Henry was the father of any children, and a might have had uh, because he was too besotted with Catherine Howard at the time. It's, right. very, it's inconceivable he would have uh, slept with Anna right. at the time when you know he's you know he's very much in love with Catherine Howard. Yeah. Um, but the rumours persisted beyond Catherine Howard's execution, and right up to the end of Henry's reign, there was talk that he would take Anna back. Mm-hmm. And uh, but Henry, but but some some strange transformation had taken place with the divorce because suddenly they 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 discovered they really liked each other and they became friends. Mm-hmm. And this is evident in Henry. Uh, Henry Henry made a, a very generous set, divorce settlement on Anna. 
But the friendship becomes evident because this is a time of rampant inflation. Prices are doubling in that decade. Mm -hmm. Um, Anna's divorce settlement was worth less and less as the years wore on. And Henry supplemented it. He paid for her offices. He paid out expenses when she was ill. And Mm -hmm. in one uh, margin of his accounts, he's got payment expenses for, in his own hand, he wrote in payment expenses for my beloved sister Anna. Oh wow! So this was a this was a relationship. They they became friends, yeah. and he looked after her. But it was after his death that things went very wrong for her. Right, because she didn't have his friendship anymore then. Well, no, no, she didn't, and she was sort of like the spare aunt, you know, right. the spare stepmother for Edward VI, who clearly didn't didn't have much affection for her right. and wasn't close to her. And she was just an, an added drain on royal resources. Right, sure. So what did did she, was it her choice to stay in England afterwards? Because I've also read yes. that it was almost like she was there as a hostage for good behavior, but I don't know how much truth there. Can you talk to me a little bit about that that decision? No, I don't think so at all. I mean, yeah. The choice was hers. She was frightened of going home mm-hmm. because the alliance had collapsed. Um, well, she thought that it didn't collapse, actually. There was no longer any need for it because Henry was no longer isolated in Europe. Uh, but she she thought that she, the alliance had failed and she would be blamed for it. And she really thought that if she went home, her brother would kill her. Mm. But don't forget, I mean, just put yourself in Anna's position. You've had a constrict, constricted upbringing. You've, uh, you know, it, it, you know, you've not had any freedom. Six mm. months of a rather miserable marriage, and suddenly you're a rich woman with freedom at your fingertips, and great houses to live in. Right. And you know, would you go home? No, of course not. <laughs> No, of course not. Um, Just the idea that she was afraid her brother would kill her. Was there any kind of, um, what would make her think, did, did he have a reputation like that? Well, no. I mean, to say, I mean, as it turned out, he was very sympathetic. He was. Right. He 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 said all the right things, made all the right diplomatic noises because he too wanted this alliance to to, to you know to be preserved. Yeah. But he needed Henry's friendship. Mm-hmm. But um, he. But privately, he was pretty nasty about Henry VIII. He wasn't very impressed with him at all, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Sure. Interesting. And so then, the the great mystery of her looks and the painting. Um, you do hint in the book that Holbein went out of favor a little bit after the painting. And I've always heard that as a reason why the painting was a good likeness because, you know, he wasn't punished afterwards. Um, and that people thought it was a a good likeness. What, what can you tell me in general about the painting? They did. They did. That's true. Um, but but I mean, we can't really tell whether it's, it's possible. That you, it's possible to say that well, he didn't get so many commissions from Henry after that, but that's not conclusive evidence. Okay. Uh, but no, there's no record of Henry complaining that Holbein deceived him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as I say, the, 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 the English English envoy in Claver thought that Anna was uh, thought that it was a good likeness. Yeah. And I think what was missing with Henry and Anna was the chemistry right. that makes a relationship work. Yeah. And and. Also, I think I think he was dismayed when he saw her. He complained she wasn't as she'd been represented to him. He didn't say that in regard to what she looked like. He was saying it more or less, or how the praise of her that he'd received. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And 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 on the wedding night, cinch this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because then then he came up with a started coming up with the I mean with the complaints that you know she wasn't a virgin. But the strange thing is that he had 
when it was, I mean, the wedding was delayed for a couple of days because he was trying to get out of it. Mm-hmm. And when he couldn't, the wedding went ahead. Mm-hmm. But at the altar, he was asked by Archbishop Cranmer if he knew of any impediments to the marriage. And he said no. Mm-hmm. And he also initiated sexual relations on the wedding night, which suggests that he intended to consummate the marriage. And then I think he felt Anna's body. He felt these tokens that he thought... It, you know, suggested she wasn't a virgin. Mm. And as he put it himself, I had no, neither will nor courage to prove further. Interesting. And I think he perhaps sort of instinctively saw a way out when it really wasn't. You also then talk about her, um, her role in Wyatt's Rebellion and the role of Mary, there, her role during Mary's reign. Um, without giving too much away, I, I, I had never heard that about her and, you know, thought about her role in that. So what can you tell me briefly about that? Well, in the years after her, her divorce, she became, she came into the orbit of a very unscrupulous man, quite a dangerous man called Sir Thomas Carden. And he was originally her keeper or steward at, at her, her big house at Bletchingley in, in Surrey. And she, he wanted Bletchingley. I mean, he was keeper of the rebels and tents. He was quite a mover and shaker at court. Mm-hmm. And he, he was involved, he was, a, he, was a, he was a closet Protestant under Henry VIII. He was involved with Catherine Parr in a secret plot, Protestant plot. He was attached to the Windsor Martyrs who were burned at the stake. He came very near to his, they were actually arrested and freed. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, and under Edward, of course, he did very well because he was a Protestant, and Protestants were, you know, in high favour. Mm-hmm. But under Mary, of course, he was considered a subversive, and he sailed very close to the wind. He was involved in, probably in every single plot against Mary. Yeah. And because he was close to Anna, because he was her tenant, and they had lots of dealings, she visited him in London. Um, uh, Anna became sort of tainted by association. Mm-hmm. I don't believe she was guilty at all, but she was supposed to have, in, uh, with with the aid of uh, the future Elizabeth I, she was who, who was imprisoned after Wyatt's rebellion right. uh, because uh, suspected of complicity in it. Anna was accused of having incited her brother to make war mm-hmm. um, as as more or less as, you know, because Henry had divorced her. Mm-hmm. It's nonsense because she'd lived very happily in England for several years. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, so your book is just fantastic. Like I said, I, I want to go through here. I had posted in one of my Facebook groups telling people I was going to be talking to you and asking for questions like I, I oh, normally do. You. And um, I well, I've got a couple questions, some of which we caught we already covered. But I do want to read this one to you that somebody posted. Um, her name's Aditi. And she said, this isn't a question, but I would like to thank her. I recently finished Isabella, Queen of England, She Wolf of France, and it was just amazing. I liked the way she differentiated facts and built up myths about the queen. I also appreciate the amount of research she did. As a 17-year-old moving to college in a totally different country, I am taking the books authored by her with me as moral support. So I thought you might oh, enjoy wow. hearing that. That's so nice. That's lovely to read something like that. Isn't it really that nice? is. Um, and so, nice. <laughs> so, if you see her, please thank her. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to. I'm going to write a comment here and tell her to listen to the podcast because uh, I read it to you. Lo- yes, please do. That's lovely. Thank you. <laughs> um, so somebody asks here, how long do you spend in research on your historical fiction? And also, what's the coolest, most interesting thing you've discovered about any of the people you've written about? That's quite oh a big gosh. question. Well, I, I, I spend years, you could say, because, I mean, the, the novels, the fiction I'm writing now is based on research I did over a long period of time, mm-hmm. mostly for non-fiction books. Some of it's unpublished as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, an awful lot. Yeah. And then, what was the other question? The, what's the coolest, most interesting thing you've discovered about oh, gosh, yes. any of the people? Oh, my goodness. 
Well, it was it was discovering various things about Anne Boleyn's execution. I think it just uh-huh. came. I was finishing researching a book called The Lady in the Tower, which is non-fiction about Anne Boleyn's fall. Mm-hmm. And literally in a month before I was delivering the book, I found just one thing after another. Um, the, the different 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 new evidence came up about Anne's execution and her burial, and it was really exciting. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That book stayed with me, just the and the lady in the tower and your graphic descriptions of her beheading. Oh, and I, yes, it was. It's grueling. Sorry, my editor said he needed a stiff drink after reading it. You know, I woke up with nightmares to it because I finished it before I went to bed and I was like, oh, that's awful. Oh, but No, it's okay. It's fine. Um, it was very gripping. So, um, let's... Thank you. <laughs> It's, it's all based on truth, and it was, there were yeah. these sources that people that people quoted from. They, everybody yeah. quoted from these these the particular sources, yeah. but they didn't quote from the whole source. Yeah. And so there was there was swathes of material that, that that had never been used or looked at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, somebody here, Susan says, do we know anything about what her family felt about the divorce? And also, did she remain in contact with her family in the following years? Will you answer that in the book yeah, quite did, a lot? She did remain in contact with her family, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and her, 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 as I said earlier, her brother was did, made all the right diplomatic noises, but he privately, he was he was quite scathing about Henry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and in later years, when when things did, did get bad um, in England, because... Uh, because Anna was, Anna was very poor, this is after Henry's death, mm-hmm. you know, the poverty kicked in. Um, the, Anna's brother sent, an, sent ambassadors to help her out, you know, and mm-hmm. made representations to the English government, um, you know, generally was very supportive. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's not, there are a couple of people here asking about her relationships after the divorce, if she could have remarried, and uh, there's a couple here, did she have anyone in, later in life romantically? Um, not outside the not outside the novel, no. But right, <laughs> right, right, right. No, but but she but um, you've got to remember that for some year, for some six years after she married, there were rumours that Henry might take her back. Right. They kept resurfacing, even though I don't believe there was any foundation to them. But while those rumours were current, um, is any man like was any man likely to come forward to suggest marriage to her? Right. And you also talked in the book about the way the annulment or the divorce was written, that uh, it seemed as if he was more at liberty to marry that because it, the, the pre-contract, then that was part of the reason for the divorce, which meant that the pre-contract still existed for her then, in theory. Well, it's because, but it's very strange because of the contradiction in, in the actual documentation of the divorce. When the bishops pronounced, when convocation dissolved the marriage and Parliament later confirmed it, it was said that both parties were free to remarry. Yeah. But the whole, but the whole thrust of the, there were three grounds for the, for the annulment. One was non-consummation, which Henry played down. Right. And the other was, the main one was the, this pre-contract that hadn't been formally dissolved. Mm-hmm. And the other one was that King had not consented to the marriage. Okay. Um, but, 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 but you've got to, but you, sorry, I've lost my train of thought now completely, oh. sorry. <laughs> that's okay. We were talking about the, if she could remarry and the pre-contract. Yes, that's right. Yes. Yeah. So they said that they're saying on one, on one hand that she's still married to the, 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 the son of the Duke of Lorraine. Right. And on the other hand, she's free to remarry. It doesn't make sense. Right, right. 
Yeah. Yeah. She, because, no, technically, she was. I mean, the, the Duke of Lorraine's son, who became Duke of Lorraine, had actually, mar- had actually married. Mm-hmm. And the whole point was that they were both Anna and the Duke of Lorraine's son. When they were pre-contracted, they were children. They were under the age of consent, which was 12 for girls and 14 for boys. Mm-hmm. And therefore, it had been assumed by their fathers that when this alliance was broken... Not, they didn't have formally to, to dissolve the betrothal, to you know, have it broken properly. Mm-hmm. But this is this. I mean, Henry was rather concerned. You can understand Henry's concern because if at any time someone turned around and said she's married to someone else, right? Uh, you know that 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 could that could compromise the English succession. Right, right. Of course, of course. And his track record wasn't that great, so he needed to make sure it was right on. Well, absolutely, yes. I mean, he'd look a fool, but it was also like a, a question of, you know, secure. I mean, if she bought him a child, for example, and mm-hmm. the future Edward VI had died, her child had been first in line to the throne. Right. And then if somebody, if somebody comes along and says, that, oh, she wasn't properly married to the king because she was pre-contracted to somebody else, right. um, that could bastardize her child. Exactly, exactly. So um, you can see why. So you look at the question of remarriage. There is this to it, but also um, the fact that um, the king is circling, and nobody's likely to sort of, you know, trespass where the king might go. Sure, sure. Here's one that says: Did Anne know about Henry's interest in Catherine Howard right from the beginning, or how did she discover it? And you you show that in the book as well, so people should should read the book. Yeah, but fictionalize that because we just don't know. She, I think she did know. I think later on, I don't think it took a little a little while. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, looking forward to reading this book when it's available. That's nice. Um, and somebody said here, where was the comment? They were at a talk by you at the Real Wolf Hall about six months ago, and you mentioned you were going to be publishing a revised version of the Six Wives of Henry VIII book. I'd love to know when that will be coming out. Really keen to read her new research. Nobody knows because I've, I've I mean, I've, I've researched and rewritten every all five of the wives now. Right. And it's been greatly expanded. And I do know that my UK publishers, non-fiction publishers, are, have suggested publishing it, republishing it as a series of six biographies. Mm. Now, whether that will happen, I don't know, and when it will happen. But it can't happen to compete with the current books, if you right. see what I mean, this novel right. series. So it's something for the future. Right. And I need to do more work on it because I've got these revised biographies, but I that still have, have you know, want, want to go on researching. Sure. So this, these novels are sort of interim project to use the research that I've done already in the new theories. Right. Interesting. Fascinating. Somebody says here, how does she get in the mindset of these characters? She's so good at it. I feel like I'm in the room with them when reading their words, even though I know they've been fictionalized. Oh, my goodness. That, that's lovely. <laughs> I get that kind of feedback. Um, it's just I think I've lived with them for so long, mm-hmm. and and you know and you do a lot of background research on them. You look up, you you find out about the the, the, the characters, you know, the characters in the book as much as you can, and try to imagine how they would feel. Mm-hmm. And so if you're writing them, all, each of these books has been written solely from each queen's point of view. Mm-hmm. So um, you know you you have to sort of look at get inside her head. Yeah, yeah. Do you ever struggle with the shifting when you go from one to the other, like when you would go from having no. been in Catherine of Aragon's head to getting into Anne Boleyn's? No, because I mean, Anne Boleyn was the biggest challenge, and I discussed that with my editors, mm. uh, because I was a bit concerned, because I don't, as a historian, um, I take a bit of a dim view of Anne Boleyn, yeah. because the evidence shows, I think, you know, she's important, pardon me, historically, yeah. but I, she doesn't seem to have been a particularly nice person. I can't understand why she's so 
to heroin for so many people <laughs> because there are so many issues around her. Mm. And the whole mythology is built up around her too. Sure. I went back to original sources and you know, found, found, found out some quite in, very interesting things about her. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was worried that I was going to write a book that wasn't sympathetic to the heroine. And my, my editor said, well, she think about how she, what her motives were, how she got from A to B, basically. Mm-hmm. Think of everything from her point of view. And that's what, what I should have done, what, mm-hmm. I, what I did do. And it was easier. Yeah. And my, uh, uh, and my agent, when I delivered the book, he said, you've written a really sympathetic biography mm. or novel. Yeah, that's that's um, but high I, I praise. Think, I think uh, a lot of people don't like my views on Anne Boleyn because she's she's almost a superstar. Right. Yeah. Well, there's that whole kind of modern cult around her being almost like a a feminist when it's hard yeah, to well, put that, a modern I think, construct I think are on it. You by default because I when I was researching Anne Boleyn, um, um, I was talking to the historian Sarah Griswold who was doing a, a book called Game of Queens about right. the women who ruled. In, in She's been on my show world. as well, yes. And I said, to, I said to her, I said, people just, I was complaining, I said, people, people you know, see Amber as a feminist icon, but, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't get that at all. And she said, she said, well, actually, she said, she, you can see why she was. And Anne Boleyn was at the courts of Margaret of Austria and Marguerite, the future Marguerite, Queen of Navarre. Mm-hmm. And they were, they, were, they were eager participants in this feminist debate that was actually going on in Europe at that time, but not in England. Right. It was the Creole des Femmes. And it was questioning, uh, you know, right, it was saying that women should be more equal with men, you know, they should mm-hmm. have more autonomy and more power. And Anne was exposed to this very early on, and it must have been part of what shaped her. Sure. Back to Anne, the another Anne, Anna here. Um, I have, uh, let's see, there's just a couple more questions I want to go through here quickly because I know we're running out of time. This is, I almost um, don't want to mention it, but I feel like if I don't, it'll be a, a disservice because some pe- other people might be thinking it too. It's been inferred that she was a lesbian. Is this true? I'm not sure I've ever oh. heard that one. And she was also strict who's Catholic. Who's so inferred it? Okay, so we'll just say no to that. Um, And then someone here says they were at a book signing of yours in Chorleywood, and you were lovely, and they loved meeting you. So there's that going as well. As well, Um, and uh, I. think uh, if I missed anybody's questions here, I'm so sorry. Uh, there's a lot of questions about her looks and her appearance, which we kind of talked about. Um, yep. So I think I caught them all here. And if I didn't, I apologize. And you have to read the book and you'll get answers to everything in the books. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So thank you. You so covered much. an awful lot. Well, we, we try to get a lot in here, right? Um, you do. Thank you so much for your, um, your generosity with your time. I know for so many of us, myself included, you were our, our entree into this tutor world, and it's just such a joy to always speak with you and, and to have you share your time. Oh, thank so. you so much, Heather. You are very, very kind. Thank oh, you. Thank you. Thank you so much to Alison Weir for being here on the show. I can't wait until next year to talk to her about her book on Katherine Howard. In the meantime, go buy the Anna of Clava book. It's amazing. It's such a good book. You will really enjoy it. I promise. You can get show notes with links and all of the links to buy the book, everything like that at englandcast.com. And also remember to go to englandcast.com slash tutorcon2019 to check out your tutorcon digital ticket. I cannot wait to see you either in person or virtually at tutorcon this year. It's going to be so much fun. All right, I'll be back in about two weeks. Thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye. Blow northern wind.
the scent who may be sweating, blow northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hote bord in Baurabrik, at soli semlis on sleep. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 